Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 tonight. I'm glad to see the good crowd here this evening because I've got something that I believe the Lord wants me to share with you. Amen. Mark chapter 11 tells the story of uh, Jesus' uh, last days here on the earth. It was uh, uh, the beginning of his last week. As a matter of fact, there's uh, about uh, this is about five days before Jesus is crucified. And it tells us the story of how that Jesus was walking between uh, Bethany and Jerusalem. It's about uh, two or three miles distance between those two locations. And Jesus saw a fig tree that had leaves on it. Now, the, the, uh, to understand a little bit about what's going on, we think of uh, fruit trees in the sense that they, pr- they produce leaves and then later on they'll bud and, and then produce fruit. That's not the way it is over in the Middle East, especially with fig trees. Uh, the figs and the leaves come out at the same time. So when you see a fig tree with leaves on it, that's a sign that the fruit's there. And so Jesus immediately assumed that the fruit would be on the tree, but he found that there wasn't anything on it but leaves. So he curses the fig tree. So they continue on their way to Bethany, and then the next morning they come back that same way, and they see that the, uh, the fig tree is dried up from the roots. We'll start reading in verse 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Can I ask you a question? What does that look like? Anybody ever seen a tree dried up from the roots? Have you? You've never seen a fig tree. You've never seen any tree dry up from the roots. We see trees dry. We see trees die from the outside in, from the branches and the leaves and the extremities in. We know that when a tree dies, you can pour poison at the base of the tree. It won't kill the tree at the base least not immediately it'll take the life from the the extremities and from the branches what does a tree look like dried up from the roots it's indi- it indicates to us that it died from the inside out and we've never witnessed that and that's the thing that caused it, at least one of the things that caused the disciples to be such astonished so astonished at the situation they remember what jesus said to the tree he cursed it and said no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever now the next morning they see a tree that they've never seen a condition that they've never seen before in their lives and never saw again and as they passed by they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots and peter calling to remembrance said unto him master behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away now what's peter doing is he saying look jesus what happened Is he afraid Jesus has not seen the tree? Does he think Jesus didn't know what was going to happen to the tree? Does he think Jesus just said, no man that you free to thee hereafter forever, and then not expect anything to happen? What is Peter doing? Peter's asking a question. Peter's drawing it to Jesus' attention, saying, what happened? We heard you speak to the fig tree. We heard you curse the fig tree yesterday, and now we see a situation with a tree, the condition of a tree that we've never witnessed before, What's up? Jesus seemed to understand this because he answers the question. Jesus could have very easily said, if this was just a matter of of Peter saying, look, you cursed the fig tree yesterday and now it's dead. Jesus could have said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way it works. But he didn't. He explained something. So he understood that they were looking for an explanation then. Couldn't we rightly assume that? So Jesus answered, said, have faith in God. There's a lot of different ways this is translated in different uh, uh, translations, a lot of different ways this is written. It sometimes says, have the faith of God. That's an actual, uh, that's a, a literal translation. He's saying the same kind of faith that God has. 
Well, if you have the same kind of faith as God or the faith of God, that would be the God kind of faith then, wouldn't it? Brother Hagin used to say that, have the kind of faith that God has, the God kind of faith. That's the only kind of faith God would have is the God kind, isn't it? Hello? So he said, have the faith of God. Another translation says it this way. The, uh, the, the words, the literal words in the original Greek says it this way. Render, uh, reckon on God's faithfulness. So the words bring out a thought that God is faithful. And we need to count on God's faithfulness. Well, faithful for what? Or faithful unto what? What about this tree drying up from the roots is, the, is an example of God's faithfulness? How can we see God's faithfulness looking at the tree? Well, you don't, if you stopped reading in verse 22, you'd never know. Verse 23 explains how God's faithfulness operates. Four. Verily I say unto you. Anytime Jesus said, verily I say unto you, he's saying, listen, this is the truth. You need to pay attention. For verily I say unto you that whosoever, notice he didn't say this is the work of the Son of God. I, this proves that I'm the Christ. This will only work for me. He said, for verily I say unto you that whosoever, that means this works for anybody. Whatever he's about to say will work for anybody and everybody that meet the conditions. Right? For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say, under this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So we say it, we sometimes summarize it this way. We can take it apart and, and, uh, and, and maybe we will. But we can summarize the verse as Jesus saying, if you believe in your heart, you'll have what you say. So what is he telling them in verse 22? about God's faithfulness. God is faithful to honor your words spoken from your heart. Which is exactly what he did when he cursed the fig tree. No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Now what does it mean to speak or to believe from the heart? We could spend a lot of time, we could go into a whole series talking about believing with the heart, but let me just say specifically, give you an example. You remember the story in Numbers chapter 13 where Israel comes to the edge of the promised land? They send the 12 spies into the land. Ten of those 12 spies come back saying, well, the land's a good land. It's a land that flows with milk and honey, just like God promised Moses. But there are giants that live in this land. They've got cities with great big walls around them. Their armies are greater than our armies. Their people are stronger than we are. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're looking at us as a worthless enemy. We can't take the land. The Bible says that they brought up an evil report of unbelief. What does that mean? We think of evil as lying and cheating and stealing and things like that. The Bible says that their evil report was because they did not believe. So if evil, if unbelief was evil under the old covenant, why would we think unbelief is not evil now? See, people take the subject of faith and unbelief so casually. Well, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe God's word or not. Really? That makes the difference in, as far as God's definition is concerned. That makes the difference between something that's evil and something that's not. Good versus evil. So they brought up an evil report. Now, what was the evil report they brought up? It says it this way. It says, and they brought up an evil report of the land through which they had searched, saying. This land eats up the inhabitants thereof. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Their evil report was identified by the words that they spoke. So in other words, they said and what they said was according to what they saw. 
But two of the 12 spies, Caleb and Joshua, came back with a good report. What the Bible identifies as a good report. They came back saying, they saw the same thing. They saw the same cities with walls. They saw the same giants or people that they, that the other considered to be giants. They saw the same armies, the same cities, the same people. They saw the same conditions. They saw exactly the same things. But two of them, Caleb and Joshua, chose to hold fast to what God said. And they said, they brought a good report saying, we can do this. We are well able to overcome them because the Lord is with us. So the good report spoke not according to what they saw, but according to what they believed that God had said. Therefore, we can identify believing with the heart as believing something other than what you see based on God's word. But an evil heart of unbelief would be believing according to what you see and feel instead of what God said. Like I said, we could teach for a month on that, just that subject and use example after example. But I think the one in uh, Numbers chapter 13 is one of the, the best examples that we can use because everybody in that story got exactly what they said. Everybody. The ten spies said it'd be better for us to die in the wilderness. They did. The congregation lifted up their voice and said it'd be better for us to die in the wilderness. They did. Caleb and Joshua said, we're well able to do it. We can overcome the land. They did. It took them 40 years to do it, but they did. They entered into the promised land. Everybody in the story got exactly what they said. Why? Because they said what they believed in their heart. Ten of the spies, ten of the 12 spies convinced the whole multitude of Israel, the, the however many millions of people there were at that time, they convinced them all based on what they saw and how they felt about what they saw. And as a result, they died in the wilderness. Two people out of all these millions, two people go into the promised land because they said what they believed based on what God had spoken and not according to what they saw. In other words, they looked at the circumstances. They said, yeah, there's giants in the land. Yeah, there's cities with walls. And yeah, their armies look stronger than us. And certainly the people outnumber us. But God said the land was ours. So we can do it. The armies of Egypt were greater than them, weren't they? God didn't have too much trouble with them just a couple of years before when he led them through the Red Sea, led Israel over on dry ground, and the Pharaoh's armies were drowned in the, in the sea when they chased after them. God didn't seem to have too much problem with the, the, the greatest army on the face of the earth, which was Egypt's army and Pharaoh as the leader. He didn't seem to have too much trouble with them. These guys must be remembering that. They must be saying, look, God made promises to us that looked too big for us before, and he made good on them. He'll make good on this one, too. He didn't bring us out here to leave us to die in the wilderness. Just because it looks like it's too tough for us, that's the perfect ground for God to work. Too many people shy away from a fight. Too many people are looking for things that they can handle. Well, if you can handle it, what do you need God for? I think too many people want easy fights so that they can say, look at what me and God did, when all the time they're thinking, look at what I did. Folks, God won't lead you into a fight that's not too big for you. Because he, he's wanting to show you he's with you. Look for big fights. That's where God shows up. Don't run from big fights. Look for them. That's where God is. He's in the stuff that's too big for you.
So he goes further in Numbers chapter 14, and after everybody has their say, after the ten spies have their say, after the congregation lifts up their voice and weeps and says, oh, what a terrible thing it is for us. We should have stayed in Egypt, but since we can't do that, it'd be better for us to die in the wilderness than be killed by all these enemy armies. Everybody is addressed. Caleb and Joshua have give their good report and try to encourage the people, don't rebel against God. God said we can take this land. This is ours. After everybody has their say in Numbers chapter 14, God says this, here is an oracle of God. Here is a never-changing law of God. Here's an eternal law of God. I will deal with you according to the words that you've spoken in my ears. And everybody, like I said, everybody in that story got exactly what they said. Because every one of them said something from their heart. Some of them, some of the hearts of the people, most of the people's hearts were affected by the, what the ten spies saw. And so they spoke according to what they saw and felt about what was seen with their natural eyes and what they heard with their natural ears. But two people out of all these millions of people said what God said about them and they entered it into it. Think about that. Think about how vastly outnumbered they were, yet they were the ones to enter into the blessing of God's promise. Folks, there's a story here, a a lesson to be learned in this. It doesn't matter if everybody says what they think. It doesn't matter if everybody speaks what they see. It doesn't matter if you're the only person in the world that believes God's word. You can have what God's word says is yours. I don't believe in healing because other people have been healed. I believe in healing because the word of God says it's mine. And I don't care what the doctor says. I don't care what anybody else sees. I don't care what compassion somebody is is uh, attempting to show. Oh, I'm just so sorry this has happened to you. Don't worry about that. I've got God's word on my side. I win. Yeah, yeah, but 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 Pastor Mike, what the doctor say? What does that matter? Let me tell you what God said. Doctors are doing the best they can. No question about that. Doctors are here to help us. Doctors are doing the best they can, but whether the doctor agrees with the Bible or not, the Bible is still true. Amen? Therefore, believing with the heart is believing according to what God said. Believing according to the unseen things of this world and not the things that you see or feel. Let's read verse 23 again. Have faith in God or reckon on God's faithfulness for verily I say unto you, verily I say unto you, truly I say unto you. Jesus is saying the same thing that Numbers chapter 14 says. This is an unchanging law of God. You better learn this one. You need to know this one. If you don't know anything else about God, know this. Because folks, if you don't know this one, you can't get saved. Because this is the very way you got saved. You got saved by, according to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, you got saved because you believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you said with your mouth, you confessed him with your mouth. That means you spoke words to the effect that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And after you spoke the words that Jesus was your Lord and Savior, then he became your Lord and Savior. Your words uh, uh, determined your outcome, in other words. Another way to say it, your words determine your outcome. You get what you say. Old Testament, New Testament, law of God never changes. For verily, reckon on God's faithfulness, for verily I say unto you. In other words, God's faithful to honor your words. God's faithful to deal with you according to what you say. That's what verse 22 means. God is faithful 
You determine what comes out of your mouth so you can have it either positively or negatively, but God is faithful to honor his law. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart. He's talking about not doubting in your heart. He's talking about believing in your heart then, right? Doubting in your heart is speaking according to what you see and feel. Believing in your heart is speaking according to what God said. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. He's even gone from trees to mountains. He didn't say this just works on trees. He says this will work on bigger problems than a tree. Now, folks, you can't give you a bigger problem than a mountain. There's just no such thing as a bigger problem than a mountain. So he's saying this will work on anything, big, little, or in between. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, notice you're not talking to God, you're talking to the mountain. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. You know why some people don't get the results that the Bible says they can have? Because they're talking to God about their mountain instead of talking to their mountain. Oh, Lord, look at this problem. Please do something about this problem. He didn't say ask God to do something about the problem. He said talk to the problem. Jesus didn't come to the fig tree and see that it didn't have fruit on it and hit a knee and say, oh, Lord, why did this happen to me? Well, there's no reason to laugh. That's what so many Christians do. No, he spoke to the problem. He spoke to the tree and said, he cursed the tree. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Jesus spoke what he wanted to take place to the tree. He didn't talk to God about the tree. He spoke to the tree. You need to learn to talk to your problems. Quit talking about your problems and talk to your problems. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall, here's the condition, and shall not doubt in his heart. In other words, don't say anything according to what he sees or feels. But shall believe in his heart. Continue to say according to the principles of the Bible, either what God said or according to the principles of, that the Bible reveals. But shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. Notice what you're supposed to believe. You're supposed to believe that your words carry power. You know why that doesn't work for some Christians? Because they know their words no good. You can't lie about other things and expect to get Bible results when you speak the word. You can't be casual about your words in the rest of life and then expect it to work when you speak the scripture. It doesn't work that way. You've got to be a person of your word if you're going to have confidence in your words. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21 says this. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, most people read that backwards. They read the power of death and life is in the tongue. It's not what it says. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The power is in your tongue. Do you realize that the power of death, even if the doctors told you you've got to die, do you realize the power of death is in your tongue, not in the doctor's diagnosis? The power of death is not in the sickness that may have attached to your body. The power of death is in your tongue. If the Bible's true. Now you have to decide for yourself if it is. But death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your tongue decides. Life or death. Your tongue makes the difference. 
It goes on to say in the last half of that verse in the King James, it says, those that love it uh, shall eat the fruit thereof. Now, there are a lot of different translations of that, a lot of different ways that that it's presented. But the general idea, and most translations will carry something along this line. If you understand the principles of God's word, the eternal law of God, according to Numbers chapter 14, that according to that which you have spoken in God's ears, that's what he will do. And folks, that never changes. It doesn't change because you're going through a hard place. It doesn't, God doesn't take special sympathy on you because this is a tough time. The law of God always holds true, and that is he deals with you according to the words that you speak in his ears. That doesn't even mean the words you say to him. That just means the things he hears you say. If you don't like what you've got in life, change what you're saying. Because the law of God's already working for you, whether you know it or not. You already have what you say because it's an unchanging law of God, whether you're aware of it or ignorant of it. So whatever you have in life is a result of what you've said. Now, I don't say that to bring condemnation upon people because a lot of times and for many years, we've said things that we had no clue that our mouths affected our outcome. We just said stuff because other people said stuff. But when we found out the truth of the word, that should have changed our speaking. It should have changed the things that we said. So death and life are in the power of the tongue and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. If you understand, and folks, I've got to tell you something. The more you grow in the knowledge, the more you meditate on the truth of this, this eternal law of God, that you can have what you say from your heart. The more you meditate on that, the more you'll come to love the law of God. It's not something to shy away from. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to rejoice in. So they that love it, love the fact that the law of God is that you can have what you say, then you'll say good things and eat the fruit of your mouth. You'll eat the fruit of your tongue. You'll sit, you'll speak. This is healing school, so we'll use healing as an example. You'll speak healing and enjoy healing. Where did we get the idea that the power of death was in the doctor's hands? Where did we get the idea that the doctor's diagnosis determined what we were going to have in life? Now, I'm not criticizing doctors. I appreciate doctors. As far as I'm concerned, they're fighting the same enemy as I am, which is sickness, part of of the uh, curse of death here on the earth, spiritual death here on the earth. And if you find a Christian doctor that knows the truth of these things, man, you've got it made then, because not only will he help you according to medical science, he'll believe God with you. So I appreciate doctors. But where did we get the idea that whatever they said could not be changed? Where did we get the idea that what they said is the final word on the subject? Christian doctors won't present it that way. Christian doctors know that they're treating symptoms. They're dealing with things according to the best of their medical knowledge. But they know that they're not the healer. They know that they don't have the final authority or final word on anything. They know... If they have any experience at all, they know that there are things that happen in the medical world that they can't explain. Something that contradicts many things that have happened that have contradicted medical science. Well, how do you explain that stuff away? A lot of doctors try. But honest ones know there's a power that's greater than them. So why does mankind give doctors the final word on anything? 
Or for that matter, why why does the, the Christian world give anybody the final word on anything other than God? Hold your finger here. We're going to come back to Mark chapter 11. But turn with me over to to Ephesians chapter 6. I was saving this for another time, but I believe this might be helpful in this circumstance or in this uh, teaching. Notice it says, we'll begin reading in verse 10. These are scriptures I'm sure you'll be familiar with. Paul making his final comments to the Ephesian church. Which, by the way, he spent more time in Ephesus than he did anywhere else. These are people that were closer to him than anybody else, personally, because he knew them. He said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice he said, be strong in God, not in yourself. Didn't say a word about being strong in yourself. People will tune up and say, well, I just can't be as strong as you. Doesn't say a word about you being strong in you. You can be strong in the Lord. Anybody can. That's what he's saying. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That's how you be strong. That's how you can be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles is usually associated with deceit or trickery, but specifically it means traveling over. It means that you can stand against the devil in the one road he travels, which by and large is deceit. If he can keep you in the dark about what belongs to you, then he can keep you from receiving it. He's writing to the Christians now, not writing to the world. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Notice each one of those will try to affect your mind because that's the one road the devil travels. Without access to your mind, he has no access to any other part of your life. Now, that doesn't mean he can't attack you. You can throw rocks at me when I'm in my car, but if I don't open the door, you can't get in. That's the way it works in life. Wherefore, because this is true, wherefore, verse 13, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Another translation says when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. So it means there's a preparation and an action concerning standing. There's a preparation to do all that's necessary to be able to stand. And then there is the action of standing itself. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to, to, to be in a position of having done all to stand? Putting on the armor of God. That's the preparation necessary to be able to stand when evil attacks you. And folks, don't wait for the problem to, to arise. Don't wait for the fight to start. Do you know of any prize fighter that waits for the fight to start before he trains? No, he gets ready before, well before. He wants to be ready when the, when the first bell rings, right? Spiritually, it should be the same way. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. Now he talks about the armor of God. Talks about the different pieces of the armor of God. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. First thing he mentions is that which represents the word of God, the truth of the word of God. Why? Because the first thing the devil's going to do is lie to you. And if you don't know what the truth is, you won't know the difference between the truth and a lie. One of the greatest lies perpetuated on the church since the history of the, of, of the book of Acts is Paul's thorn in the flesh. Well, too many Christians don't know what the truth is. Paul said that his thorn in the flesh was persecution. After he prayed and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, 
Just as the church world says, he prayed three times for God to take the sickness away from him. No, he didn't. And you can tell that by the answer God gave him. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Never, never, never is grace talked about in relation to physical sickness. Jesus never laid hands on anybody and says, grace be unto you. Never. Grace is always an inward, spiritual thing to equip you for life. So Paul said, therefore, I will take pleasure in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in a bunch of other stuff. Just about the only thing not on the list is physical sickness. But the church has bought the lie. Well, if Paul wouldn't, if God wouldn't heal Paul, how do I know that he'll heal me? There's only one way to counteract the lie, and that's with the truth. Having your loins girded about with truth. I was talking to somebody today after the service. Bless their hearts. They were all upset about somebody else's situation. Actually, they were meddling somebody else's affairs and shouldn't have been and wanted me to meddle with them. And so they started talking about all this uh, stuff that was going on and somebody's believing God for, for their healing and, and it didn't look to the, like to them. They'd been a friend of theirs for a long time. Didn't look like to them that it was working. So that means we're teaching a lie. Connect those dots. So that she started telling me about all this. And I said, well, excuse me, I hate to interrupt you. But first of all, why is this any of your business or mine? This is a family matter. If the family wants me involved, they'll ask me. I'm not going to get involved because you're concerned. I don't know you. It's the first time you've ever come to here. And she started in on, well... You know, but you teach, you folks believe in healing, and I can see that he's he's not getting better, and he won't go to the doctor, and yada, 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 yada. And I stood there with a smile pasted on my face for about 10 minutes and listened to everything she had to say. And she judged what she thought we believed and so forth. And I finally got to the point where I thought, okay, we're done. And I ripped this woman to shreds. I can do that. It's a gift. I ripped this woman to shreds. And I started telling her the word. I just gave her scriptures. I started telling her about Isaiah 53, 5. I started telling her about Matthew 8, 17. I started telling her what the Bible says about Jesus healing us. Not going to heal us, but the fact that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. And she interrupted and she said, well, yes, I know that Isaiah 53 is, uh, is your favorite scripture for those that believe like you. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, with all due respect, you don't know what you're talking about. Because the same verse of Scripture that says that Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses said that he took our sins. So if Isaiah 53, 5 does not mean that we are healed by, the, by his stripes, you're not saved. Well, that got a new look. <laughs> and as what normally happens with people that don't know what they're talking about, they've got nothing to say. And the reason, and I, she brought up Paul's thorns. She said, well, God doesn't heal everybody. I said, oh, really? My Bible says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. I don't know who you think our and we means. She said, well, God didn't heal Paul. And she got this sanctimonious, well, God didn't heal Paul. Paul prayed three times, and God said no. And I said, ma'am, once again, you don't know what you're talking about. Would you like to get the Bible and see it for yourself? Well, no, that's not necessary. And I thought, yeah, I, that's exactly what I thought. You don't want to see what it says. So I told the same thing I just told you. Paul said, after hearing from the Lord that my grace is sufficient for you, which is never dealt with according to physical sickness. Never, ever, ever. Now, mercy is, but not grace. 
Never. You can never find a connection between grace and physical healing. You can never find a connection between grace and the physical body. Ever. Because grace is an action on the heart. How it's reflected in the life is up to the individual. Never is a connection between grace and healing or grace and the physical body. Never. And so I pointed out, Paul said that he'll take pleasure in reproaches and necessities and persecutions. She finally said, well, you're very strong. I said, ma'am, I'm not trying to be strong. I just know what's true. And I'm not going to let what you feel or think about somebody else's situation change what I know is true. Now, folks, I know that a lot of people consider that to be arrogance. I get that. But that's a small price to pay for knowing the truth. Just because somebody else chooses to be weak and chooses to accuse me of being arrogant, I'm not going to turn loose of the truth because of that. Are you? That's what Paul says is first and foremost in the armor of God, having your loins girt about with truth. You can't shake me from the truth. Now, there's some things I don't know. I don't know who the Antichrist is, so I'm not going to argue who he is. Got a good idea. No, I'm just teasing. I have no clue. It's going to turn out to be some nobody down the road that nobody's ever heard of yet. But there's a lot of things I don't know. There's things about the end time that I don't know. And I'm not going to argue about things I don't know. But the things I do know, you're wasting your time trying to get me to turn away from them. Not going to happen with me. Now, there's plenty of people that you can talk out of, talk, uh, talk away from the truth. So don't take heart. There's plenty of folks out there. I'm just not one of them. And that's what I read that Paul is saying for all of us to be. Having your loins go about with truth. Be in a position where you can't be shaken no matter what somebody says or thinks or does. Having your loins go about with truth. That's the first thing he says. Secondly, he says, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, we need to know who we are in Christ. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I want you to notice, I'm going to pick one out of there. Notice the one in verse 16. Above all, that means overall. It doesn't mean it's the most important thing because they all work together. Faith won't work if you if you don't know who you are, if you're not established in righteousness. Because then the devil will tell you, no matter what faith you try to exercise, the, the devil will tell you you're not worthy. So all of these things fit together. You can't say one is more important than the others. And that's not what Paul say. Overall means above all or, or out front of every one of the others. In other words, your faith should be out front like a shield. Doesn't mean it's more important. It means it's the one that you stop the enemy with. And notice it says above all or out front of all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Anybody got a concordance? Can tell me what the word quench means? Anybody got an iPad? Look up real quick. I can tell you. I just want somebody else to, to confirm it. Anybody got one? Okay, I'll tell you then. The word quench means to extinguish. It means to put out. Now, you can't extinguish something that's not on fire. Wouldn't make sense for me to hold up a match that's not lit and try to quench it, would it? No, you can only quench something that's lit or something that's burning. We would take a fire extinguisher. If there was a fire over in the corner of the building, we'd take a fire extinguisher and we'd extinguish the fire. We would put the fire out. But you don't extinguish something unless it's on fire, right? 
Well, what's on fire here are the darts of the enemy, the, the fiery darts of the enemy, the, the flaming darts of the enemy. Now, one of the things that it means, the Bible also says quench not the spirit. Doesn't it? It says quench not the spirit. So it tells you to quench the fiery darts of the enemy, but don't quench the spirit. How do you quench the spirit? How do you put out the Holy Ghost? What does he mean? Well, the context that is spoken of in, in First uh, Thessalonians, where it says despise not prophesying and quench not the Spirit, he's saying when the Spirit of God is moving, don't quench what the Holy Ghost is doing. How do you do that? Historical records tell us, from church history uh, records tell us, that uh, the Thessalonian church had so many prophesyings, everybody's prophesying, everybody's trying to predict the future, everybody's doing stuff that they have no idea what they're doing, that it got to the point where the Thessalonian church just said, forget it, we don't want to hear anybody say this is from the Lord. And that's what Paul warns them against. He said, don't quench the spirit. He said, hold fast, prove all things and hold fast to what's good. In other words, there are going to be some prophecies you hear that are going to be right. Hold on to those. Other prophecies you hear are just people trying to do the right thing and they're playing around with stuff that they don't know. Leave those things alone. Set those things away because that's not God speaking. But don't quench the spirit. Don't keep the Holy Ghost from moving in any context. Now, can I ask you a question? Is that the only way the Holy Ghost moves in our lives? Is in prophecy? How else does he move? Doesn't he lead you? One of the things Jesus said he'd do is he'd guide you into all truth. He said he'd bring all things to your remembrance. He said he'd teach you all things and he said he'd show you things to come. Right? Well, if the Holy Ghost is teaching you the truth, couldn't you quench that too? If the Holy Ghost is guiding you, couldn't you quench that too? If the Holy Ghost is showing you things to come, couldn't you quench that too? Now, how would we do that? Well, we've all done that by accident. We've all done that out of ignorance. And what that means is we put out the leading of the Holy Ghost in our own personal lives, private lives, because we fail to give value to what he's doing. We fail to recognize, wait a minute, this is the Holy Ghost. Folks, if every time the Holy Ghost moved in, in, in your life, tried to lead you or guide you or whatever, and he showed up ringing a bell saying, I'm the Holy Ghost, you'd listen. But sometimes we fail to listen because we don't recognize that's him. And then after we fail to recognize his leading and fail to do what he was leading us to do and things don't work out, then we say, man, that was the Holy Ghost, wasn't it? He's trying to keep me from this all along. Why didn't he keep us from that all along? Because we failed to put value on what he was doing through ignorance. It's not like we tried to, but we failed to detach value to it. So that's another way you can quench the Holy Spirit. That's one meaning of the word quench, too. It doesn't just mean to extinguish like you put out a fire. It means to count as nothing, to put at naught. In other words, to not attach value to. So what's it saying in that context about the shield of faith? It's saying we're supposed to take the shield of faith and count what the devil does to be of little value. By faith, we're to count what the devil does as of little value. That's how you quench the work of the devil. Now, let's, let's use healing for an example. Let's say you get a diagnosis of sickness that says you've got so many days to live or so many months to live. Here's a fiery dart of the wicked. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take the shield of faith, which says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and take that shield of faith and say, here's what the Bible says about God and his will for me concerning healing. Therefore, I place little value on the doctor's report about what's happening in my body. 
That's exactly what Romans 4 says that, that Abraham did. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. What's he doing? He's considering the condition, the physical state, the physical condition of his body at a 100 years of age to be of little value. Why? Because God said, I have made you the father of nations. So he took his faith in what God said, I have made you the father of nations, and he attached little value to the physical condition of his body, and he and Sarah had a child. Do you see it? Back to Mark chapter 11. Jesus answering said unto them, verse 22, have faith in God or reckon on God's faithfulness. For verily, truly, I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, shall not say anything to the contrary, shall not speak according to what he sees and feels, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. He might have, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Finally, turn with me over to Mark chapter 9. I'm going to take for granted that you know what Rome, what um, John 14, 12 says without looking at it. Jesus said, The works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. Then he goes on to tell them, and whatsoever you ask, literally call for or require in my name, that's what I'll do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus told his disciples, and if it just meant for them, then why did we have a record of it? What good does it do to me, for me, what he told Peter that he was going to do in his life? Outside of a history lesson, what do I care about Peter? What do I care about any of the other 12? If this was just intended for them and not for those that would believe on Jesus through their word, which is us, then what do we care? Now, he gave us a record because the same thing he gave them authority to do, he gave us authority to do. Because nothing changes. The day There's no such thing as the days of the apostle. Because we are living in the days of Jesus who never changes. It's the work of God that's important, not the work of the apostles. Amen? Therefore, he said to us, the church, the modern-day church, the works that he did shall we do also, and even greater works shall we do because he went to the Father. He left us the Holy Ghost. You shall receive power after the Spirit, after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me uh, or for me everywhere you go. It's the power of the Holy Ghost that enables us to do the works that he did and even greater works. Right? We know these things to be true. Mark chapter 9. Jesus has just come back from the mountain of transfiguration. And when he came to his disciples, verse 14, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? Scribes were always trying to trip up the disciples and him too. So he assumed that was the case. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I think they're all dumb, but this one keeps this boy from talking. You'll get that later. And wheresoever, how how smart can you be to rebel against God? Goodness gracious. 
And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him and foameth, and he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Everybody say, could not. doesn't say they wouldn't. It says they couldn't. That means they did not have the ability to do so. The problem is Jesus has already given them authority to cast out devils and to heal sickness and disease. So they've been given authority to do something that in this case they can't do. There's a hindrance here some way or another, and they don't know what it is. But Jesus does. It's the same hindrance that, that he ran into in Mark chapter 6 in his own hometown, which was unbelief. Mark 6, 5, and he could in Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't, it says he couldn't. Now, most of the church thinks Jesus could do anything because he was the Son of God. If that's true, then we're going to have to rip Mark chapter 6 out of the Bible. Because it says very specifically in chapter 6, verse 5 of Mark, that he could there in Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. That means he couldn't get any signs or wonders or miracles or great healings to occur. Why? Verse 6 says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So if unbelief kept Jesus from being able to do mighty works and miracles and signs and wonders, why wouldn't we think that unbelief will hinder us from doing the works of Jesus today? That's why we teach on faith. It's the same thing Jesus did to counteract their unbelief. He went round about their cities and villages teaching. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That's why we put such an emphasis on teaching faith. Because when you teach over and over and over again, it begins to sink in and people start to see it. And that faith is necessary to receive. Don't think you receive anything without faith. Faith is always the means, the vehicle whereby you receive anything and everything from God. So, it says, the disciples, I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him. Everybody please mark that word him in your Bible. He does not turn to the disciples and say, you unbelieving bunch of guys. He answers the man, the father of the child. He answered him saying, oh, faithless generation. Who's the faith problem with? The father. The problem is identified immediately by Jesus as unbelief on behalf of the father who has responsibility for the child. How does Jesus know? Because unbelief is always the only thing that it's the only thing it's, it's continually. It's the only thing that can stop the power of God from working. You know, the only thing that keeps the world from being saved. Unbelief. You know, the only thing that keeps the church from being healed. Unbelief. It's the only thing, folks. The power of God is greater than everything except the unbelief of the individual. Because your will determines what you're going to have. Your will determines what you say. Your will determines what your outcome is going to be. Whether it be faith or unbelief. Whether it be words of faith or words of doubt. You determine. The one thing the power of God is not greater than is the individual will of mankind. Now, my will is in line with God. So there's nothing that hinders me from receiving from God. If I speak words of faith and believe in my heart, there is nothing the devil can do to keep me from getting what God's word says is mine. You can make that determination. But just in the, on, the, on the other hand, you can make the determination that no matter what, no matter what the word says, you're just not going to have it that way. I've had people come up to me and say, Pastor Mike, I want you to explain something to me. Why can't I receive my healing? 
And I always answer, well, of course you can't. The Bible says faith is the means whereby you receive anything and everything from God. So let's see what the Word says about healing. So I'll show them a scripture or quote a scripture to them, and then they'll tune up. I've had them do this over and over again. They'll tune up and say, well, let me tell you what I think about it. Well, there's your problem right there. You're thinking something contrary to what the Bible says. Now, you've got your right to think anything you want to. We all do. Everybody has a right to think what they want to. But don't think that your thinking matters when it comes to the truth of God's Word, except to hinder you from receiving. You can think in agreement with God's Word and receive. You can think contrary to God's Word and fail to receive. It's just that simple. Smith Wigglesworth used to talk to people, and, and he dealt with people in kind of a rough way. He was an old, old-timer old type, and, and there were people he'd kick in the seat of the pants when they'd come to be prayed for the second time. I mean, he was, I'm just not sure you could be a pastor and do like that. And he was tough. I mean, he was rough with people. He got results. He got tremendous results. But there was one guy that, uh, or one lady that came to him, and, uh, and she had uh, cancer. She was riddled with cancer, and she was just in desperation. And, and so he, his account was this. He said he took her hands. He said immediately, my spirit connected with hers. He said, I could sense the desperation in her, in her voice, in her heart. He said, ma'am, there's two things that are going to happen here before you leave today. He said, the first is you're going to know that you're saved. And she started to cry and she said, oh, that would be so wonderful. She said, this thing has been such a burden in my life. This cancer and sickness has been such a burden in my life. I, I just prayed and, and asked God and nothing's happened. I, I'm just not even sure that he hears me anymore. So he talked to her. He got her, he got her, uh, you know, squared away as far as salvation is concerned and what the Bible says and that type of thing. He says, now, the second thing we're going to have to deal with is this cancer in your body. And she said, oh, Brother Wigglesworth, I believe. I have faith. And he stopped and he said, Madam, he said, you're at the point of death. How could you be at the point of death and have faith? Well, that shocked her. Now, you could hear that a couple of different ways. You could hear that as being condemnation, saying you don't have any faith and that's why you're in this situation. Right? And some people, in my opinion, have made that mistake. We've tried to blame people for their own situations. Look, I don't know of anybody that can do that. In order to do that, you have to see inside what somebody's heart, what, what is inside of somebody's heart. I, don't, I can't do that. I'll never tell somebody that their problem is they don't have enough faith. Because faith is a matter between the individual and God. And nobody that ever works with me will ever say that to anybody either. I've made that very clear to my staff. You want to get fired? Tell somebody they don't have enough faith. You're out of here. Because that's not our job. Our job is not to judge somebody's faith. Our job is to help them and encourage them in faith by showing them what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. All you have to do is give somebody the word and faith will be produced. So what he's saying is not a condemnation. What he's trying to get her to realize is the faith that she's operating in or what she thinks is faith is not the thing that's bringing her results. So she's going to have to make a change. Somebody else said... Um, uh, I think it was uh, John Lake said this. He said, if I pray and don't get results, I change. Now, folks, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Because there's no point in praying for the same thing and expect God's going to change. He doesn't change. So what he was saying is, if I pray and don't get results, I realize the change is going to have to come in me. So I'm going to have to get something straightened up some way or another so that I'm in faith, so that I'm in a position to receive from God. Maybe it's my love walk. Maybe I need to forgive somebody. Maybe I need to examine myself. 
to make sure that I'm walking in the love of God. That's what he was saying. He was, Wigglesworth was trying to get her to realize you're going to have to change what you're doing if you're going to get results because you've been doing what you're doing for a long time and it hadn't worked. So it shocked her. She said, well, you mean I'm not in faith? He said, oh, ma'am, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's a faith that reaches out and takes from God and you're going to operate in that faith before you leave today and that cancer is going to be gone. Well, he gave her hope. See, what she was doing is thinking she was in faith, but she had lost hope. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for or the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you lose your hope, you don't have anything to, to, bound, to ground or base your faith on. She had lost her hope. Well, he took hold of her and he said, ma'am, he said, do you know what Mark eleven twenty three 23 says? She said, well, I'm not sure. So he quoted it to her. And he said it this way. He said, this means that if I believe in my heart, I can have what I say. Therefore, I say that I break the power of this cancer over your body and I cast it out now. Well, in a matter of moments, the cancer was gone. She was standing up healed. Now, this is one reason why people called Wigglesworth the apostle of faith, because all he looked for was willingness on the part of the people that came to him. And, and it seems to me that it was just the way that God used him, the manner in which the, the, the type of ministry that God gave him. Because there was more people healed on his faith, or at least led into healing by his faith, than people that received on their own, meaning their own faith. That has a lot to do with this story here. So the disciples could not cast the devil out of this little boy. So Jesus answered him, the father, and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Notice Jesus didn't say, well, you don't believe, so you might as well go home. Jesus recognized that faithlessness or unbelief is the problem. So now bring the boy to me. Let's fix the problem. I think we give up too easy on people. And they brought him unto him, brought the boy unto Jesus. And when he, the boy, saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. Now, folks, I can tell you why the man's in unbelief. He's lost hope, too. It's been this way all of his life. You can get to the point of desperation where you think you're in faith and you've lost your basis for that faith. You've lost your hope. Well, this story tells you what to do about that. The father continues, he says, and oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see the desperation in his voice? Now put yourself in this position. What if this was your son? Man, I'd give up anything in my life for my son to be made well or whole, wouldn't you? He's grabbing at every straw he can. And finally he says, but Jesus, if you can do anything, I doubt if seeing the apostles fail helped strengthen his faith. What do you think? He probably comes to the disciples and finds out Jesus is not there and his face falls. Oh, I was hoping he'd be here. And one of the disciples probably speaks up and says, not to worry. Jesus gave us authority to cast out devils and to heal diseases. Really? Okay, then. That's great. Can you minister to my son? Sure, we can. Come out of him in the name of Jesus. Nothing works. Okay? We cast you out in Jesus' name. Nothing works. 
Be healed in Jesus' name. Nothing works. Each time the father sinks lower and lower and lower. I would, wouldn't you? Now, I wouldn't if I know what I know now, but knowing what he knew. I can just see this father sinking lower and lower. Finally, Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. The guy knows he's talking to him. You don't have any faith, do you? Bring him to me. Well, okay, at least he wants to see him. Finally, the guy answers Jesus, how long has this happened to him? He said, since he was a child. Oh, Jesus, if you can do anything, help us. Folks, I would submit to you that that's where most of the church is praying right there. Jesus, if you can do anything, help us. Don't know if you can or not. Some churches say you can. Other churches say you can. I don't know what to believe. Jesus, if you can do anything, help us. What a mess we've made of the truth of the word of God. We, the church world at large. I'm not talking about me. But what a mess the church world has made of the word of God. Well, we don't believe in those gifts of the spirit stuff anymore. All that passed away with the apostles. Really? Well, somebody explained to me, if you can pick and choose what part belongs to us and what part doesn't, how do we know you're picking the right parts? That sounds funny, doesn't it? But it's truth. How do we know salvation still belongs to us if some of the other stuff that was said at the same time it talked about salvation by the same people that talked about salvation doesn't belong to us anymore now? How do you know? I think we have built in, by default, I think the modern-day church has built in so much unbelief that it's tough to get people through that barrier just to accept that Jesus is the healer. That's the biggest thing I deal with, is to get people to believe that Jesus really can and will heal them. And usually it takes a long time. You're chipping away week by week, service by service. So the father says, if you can do anything, have mercy on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, if you can believe. Notice he puts it right back in his lap. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now, folks, I would submit to you that if a preacher did that, me or anybody else did that today, they would be run out of town. Because of all the people that had sympathy for the poor father just trying to get help for his son. And here the preacher says, the problem is, or the problem can be solved by you believing. All you got to do is believe. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. That's the point where a lot of people will quit. Well, if I got to do anything, just forget it. I was thinking God would do this. Well, the Son of God can't do anything about it without the faith of the Father. Otherwise, Jesus would have said, look, don't bother about it. You know, the disciples, I just picked the best I had. You know, they mess up a lot. Just just forget about all that. I'm here now. I'm the Son of God. I'll take care of this. Which is what most of the church world thinks Jesus did. They think he just went around indiscriminately doing healing miracles based on who he was. Well, then why does Jesus talk so much about faith? Why does Jesus explain the necessity for faith in the life of the individual? Jesus said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Can I ask you a question? How many people would get saved if they came to the altar and said, Lord, I believe you went to the cross for me. Help my unbelief. 
Would that work for salvation? Not according to the Bible. That wouldn't do it. How does this father get help for his son? What is he saying when he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? I believe the guy's being honest. He had been smarter not to say the last part. But I believe he's being honest. I believe Jesus recognized the honesty of the man. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What does he believe? What did people have to believe in Jesus' day when he was here on the earth? What did people have to believe in order to get healed? That Jesus had been raised from the dead? He hadn't. What did they have to believe? That Jesus was the healer? That he had took up, taken our infirmities, bore our sins, and bore our sicknesses and stuff? Well, he hadn't. They couldn't believe that. What did they have to believe? Folks, it came down to one thing. They had to believe that he was sent from God and had healing power. That's it. That's all they had to believe. Can I ask you a question? Remember where we started before we went back to Mark chapter 9? John 14, 12. Verily I say unto you, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. Would Jesus require of me a greater standard, a greater hurdle of unbelief to clear than he cleared himself when he was here on the earth? Would he require that of any man? Would Jesus require a greater degree of belief, of faith, in order for us to do the works that he did and even greater works? Would he require a greater standard of belief than when he was here on the earth? If the answer to that is yes, then I've got a problem. How am I going to do the same works you did, Jesus, if I have to overcome a greater hindrance where it comes to unbelief. If I've got a higher standard, a higher pole to clear, a higher bar to jump, how am I going to do the same works that you did? And how am I going to do greater works because of the power of the Holy Ghost that I've got if I've got to uh, expect or create a greater degree of faith than you did when you were doing works here on the earth? Would that be fair of the Lord? No, it wouldn't. So what do people have to believe now? That he was sent from God and he's the, he has healing power. For that to be, for anything else to be true, God is unfair and he's unjust and God is a respecter of persons. He expected less of Jesus in his earthly ministry than he expects of me as a pastor or anybody else as a minister. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, folks, here's the reason I'm asking this. This is the question that the Lord asked me. Do you expect, do you think I expect more of you when it comes to faith than I expected of the people that came to me? This guy got his, uh, got results for his son by saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That doesn't sound like a high level of faith to me. He's mentioning unbelief just as much as he's mentioning faith in that statement. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that another way to say that is, Lord, I believe, but boy, do I have a lot of questions in my mind. Well, guess what? Questions in your mind don't hinder faith. Because faith is not of the mind, faith is of the heart. So Jesus 
saw that the people came running together and he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. He got results where the disciples could not because he got the father to confess. He got the father to say, I believe. Even though I've got problems with this, even though I don't understand everything, I believe. What does he believe? He believed that Jesus was sent from God. That's the reason why he came to him in the first place. And he believed Jesus had the power to heal. That's all that's necessary today. That's all that's necessary today, folks. To believe that Jesus was sent from God. Now, you can expand on that. You can say, I believe Jesus was sent from God because I know he's my Savior. I know I confessed him as my Lord and Savior, and he changed my life. So that can mean a lot more than just I believe he was sent from God. And you could expand on the healing part. I believe he has healing power. He's healed me before. There have been other situations in my life where I believed him for healing, and he came through. God honors his word in my life over and over and over again. So I have reason to believe that he has healing power. But it still comes down to the same thing. And Jesus said that under those conditions... Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit care more about this guy and his son than he cares about you in your situation? If so, we've got pages to tear out of the Bible. Because the Bible says God's no respecter of persons. That means God cares as much about you and your situation as he cared about this father and the son. That was demon possessed. Then is he going to require more of you than he requires of the father? Why would he? I would submit to you that you already are at a higher level than the Father because of your knowledge of the Word. But that doesn't mean it's a harder jump for you to make. That means it's an easier jump for you to make. The Father had no experience with God. The Father had no no reason to think that Jesus would do anything other than what he has heard from other people about Jesus. You already know the power of God in your own life. Folks, healing ought to be the easiest thing in the world for the Christian. Ought to be the easiest thing in the world. Ought to be the easiest thing in the world because all that's required is for you to believe that Jesus was sent from God and that he has healing power. That's it. That's it. If you choose to believe that, then your words are going to reflect it. And those words, irrespective of what's going on in your body, are going to be reflective of the belief in your heart. And Jesus said, that whosoever shall say from his heart shall have whatsoever he says. You know, one of the reasons I love teaching on healing, because there's always a healing anointing that follows. You teach on healing, teach on the power of the name of Jesus, and the glory of God will fill any room. It's been here for quite a while. Now, the last time that the glory of God filled the room was several weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, and we had a variety of people that were healed, people that were healed of arthritis. We had one person who said that uh, had a cataract disappear from his eye. Had people that had hip trouble. They were healed. 
Somebody, if I remember correctly, somebody had something wrong with their esophagus and that was healed. Nobody laid hands on anybody. Because the power is not in a man. The power is in Jesus. And he's given us authority to do the same works that he did. And even greater works. Because of the power of the Holy Ghost that's been given to us. Let's just wait on the Lord for a minute and see what he wants us to do. Lord, we magnify you. Jesus, you are the healer. There's healing in the name of Jesus. Healing power resides and dwells in that wonderful name. Lord, we know that you are in this place. We know that you dwell among us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for manifesting your presence here with us. We recognize, Holy Spirit, that you're here to heal every person that's in this room. That healing is just as easy to receive as salvation. We didn't have to beg you to save us. We just had to accept what your word says and act on it. In the same way, all we need to do is accept what your word says about healing and act on it. We bless you, Lord Jesus. What would you have us do, Lord? Guide us, Holy Spirit. All right. I'm supposed to lay hands on the sick. I know it's late. But what can I tell you? It's part of what I'm supposed to do. I saw myself do it earlier in the, in the uh, well, during the prayer meeting when I was praying. I saw myself laying hands on some people. I saw myself laying hands on this gentleman back here in the wheelchair. He hasn't been with us for some time. He's been here before, but it's been it's been quite a while since he's been here with us. So, sir, would you come up here? I'm supposed to lay hands on you, too, sir. Back in the wheelchair. Would you come too? Yeah. yeah. I'm talking to you. Why don't you stand in the congregation? You've been sitting for a long time. I've been talking for a long time. Give you a chance to change your position. I want you to be in faith with us. Don't be a spectator. Be a participant. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, sir, if I remember correctly, this is ALS. Is that right? Do I remember right? Come right over there. Father, you see these two gentlemen. They believe that Jesus is the healer by virtue of the fact that they came to this place. They came here for help.
by virtue of the fact that they came forward when I asked them to. It's a demonstration of their faith. Lord, we believe that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we were healed. We believe, therefore, in the finished work of Jesus. Furthermore, we believe that we have the power to do the same healing works here on the earth that Jesus did. The power's not in us, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus. So, Father, you said that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore, Father, I say unto this condition, the results and even the presence of ALS, I break its power over my brother's body in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I minister the healing power of God to him from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, and I cast it from his body. I break its power and command it to go Father, I speak words of healing and health. I say that this ALS is broken over my brother in Jesus' name. And furthermore, I declare that he's healed from the top of his head to the soles of his feet in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, for strengthening his body, for bringing strength back to his arms and his hands his legs and his feet and his ankles, restoring, Father, in a supernatural manner, the vigor of his youth in Jesus' name. I declare, Father, that sickness is broken over his body and that he is healed in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Now remind me what the situation is with you, sir. MS. Father, I lay hands on my brother. I curse this MS and the, and the results, the effects that it's had upon his body. I break its power over his body right now in the name of Jesus. In the authority that you've given to the church and the authority you've given to me as the pastor of this congregation. I command it to leave his body and I command his body to be made whole. Strength renewed and restored in the name of Jesus. We declare, Father, according to Mark eleven twenty three, that this gentleman along with the other shall rise and walk. And be restored to divine health by the power of God in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now let's lift our hands and thank God because His Word's true. Lord, we bless You. We magnify Your name. We thank You for a healing work. We thank You for healing miracles. Oh, we thank You, Lord Jesus. You said we'd do the same works as you did and even greater works because you went to the Father. I thank you, Father, for glorifying your Son, Jesus. 
Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Oh, thank you, Father, for the glory of God that's here in this place. To heal every person. To heal every person. To restore each and every person from sickness and disease. Now, if you need something from, from the Lord, just reach up and take it by faith. What I mean by that is reach your hands up into the cloud that's above your head and say, by faith, I receive my healing now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Oh, thank you, Father. It's not by our might. It's not by our power. But by the Holy Ghost. The miracles are done. By the Holy Ghost, these men are healed. By the Holy Ghost and the power in the name of Jesus, this congregation walks in divine health. In Jesus' name. 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 See these two guys right down here? They're healed by the stripes of Jesus. This man was just healed of ALS. This man was just healed of MS. There's not an S that's big enough for Jesus. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I don't see a difference. I don't care what you see. By the stripes of Jesus, they are healed. According to the word of God, they are made whole. From the top of their head to the soles of their feet. You watch and see these guys come back walking. You watch and see. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Real faith, I just heard these words in my spirit. Real faith is willing to walk to the end of the, the limb and cut the limb off behind it. Knowing that the word of God will uphold him. That's how I feel, folks. I feel like we've cut the limb off behind us. Because these men are healed. In the name of Jesus. You watch. You watch and see. And if it doesn't happen, I suggest that you never listen to another word that I say. These men are healed. By the stripes of Jesus. I want you to understand what I am saying. I'm establishing. I'm putting. The 27 years of pastoring. And the credibility. Whatever that may be. That I've attained. During that period of time. 
on the reality that these men are healed by the stripes of Jesus. Just as the man that was told to wash off in the pool of Siloam came again seeing, these men will come again walking in Jesus' name. <laughs> now the devil's screaming in my ear. Boy, you've done it now. You've just told them not to listen to you anymore. No. I just told them that the healing power of God is real. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and thank God one more time. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your holy name. We worship you. We glorify you. We glorify your healing mercy, Jesus. We've acted on your word. And we believe and know that it's true. So we worship you. And we declare that these men are healed in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You believe that too? How many of you believe it? How many of you just wait and see what happens? I don't really care. doesn't matter to me. Because whether you believe it or not doesn't matter. The word of faith has been spoken. And it shall be. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thanks for being with us.